Good morning. We're, uh, we're here in our summer series called I Do Not Think That Verse Means What You Think It Means. And I do not think that this verse we're looking at this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, means what folk often think it means. But I want to say, I think the interpretation that is popularly held of this verse, the way people often read this, is, it comes from a sincere effort to arrive at an understanding of something that is really difficult to understand by its very nature, i.e., the end of the world. Uh, and it's something in which the Bible is anything but crystal clear. So I think the, the impetus for trying to understand this verse the way it's often understood is, is a good one. I just don't think that ultimately it works. We say in the Creed, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. He being... Jesus, good. So He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. But, but when will He do this? And how will He do this? There's some stuff here in Scripture that seems to give some clues as to maybe how, but it's really hard to make sense of. And here is one of these spots. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'll start in verse 13. Paul writes, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, and we don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, my brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, my brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but instead let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God didn't appoint us to suffer wrath, but but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. So this verse, verse 17, after that we are still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This is probably the key verse that people have used to support the idea of the rapture. Anybody heard, the, heard of the rapture? Anybody heard of the left behind? Apparently, 
they're making another Left Behind movie, realizing just how awful the first one was. Yeah. Um, uh, the way one theologian described the rapture, that's when you look out the window and see people floating up in the clouds and say, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> but the idea of the rapture, as this has been taught, and, and uh, this is a, a fairly recent theological development, it really doesn't show up until the 19th century, uh, the idea is that there is going to be this great tribulation that's going to come uh, as the world ends, and God, because he loves his people and cares for them, is going to rapture them, is going to secretly come and snatch them away, uh, so that in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, as the bumper sticker says. Uh, God is going to take these people away, and uh, they're going to be saved and preserved from this great tribulation. Uh, great tribulation, of course, a uh, couple, couple spots in Scripture we read about this. One is in Revelation in chapter uh, 7. Chapter 7, starting in verse 9, uh, John says, After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count. John here has sort of been taken up to heaven, and he's seeing this vision. There was a, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, those in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, I'm new to town. You've been here longer than I have. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So here we have these martyrs who are described as those who have come out of the great tribulation. Interestingly, it seems like the reason they're martyrs is because they had to go through the great tribulation. So it would appear that they may not have gotten in on the rapture thing. Let's look at the other place where we find the great tribulation mentioned, which is in Matthew, Matthew's gospel in chapter 24. Now this is a rather long passage, but it's really, really vivid. So maybe just close your eyes and listen to this. So the scene is that Jesus had left the temple, and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to all of its buildings. You see all this, he says? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every single one is going to be thrown down. So as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, just across the valley... The disciples came to him privately. Well, tell us, they said, when's this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, remember, when he says, not one stone here will be left on another, he is describing a really, really impressive temple complex that Herod was at the time still in the process of building. He barely got it finished before 
in AD 70, the Romans finally tore, tore the thing down when they laid waste to Jerusalem. But this was a really impressive edifice that Jesus was walking by. This was the pride of the Jewish people. And, and the idea that, that these stones, these massive stones, if you've ever been over there, these things are huge, an engineering marvel that they were able to, to put this thing together. He's saying that they're all going to be thrown down. And they're like, really? Well, when's this going to happen? And, and then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am Messiah and will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are just the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of it. Let no one in the field go back to go get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days hadn't been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or, hey, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect as if that were possible. Now, see, I've told you about this ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my, my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For 
In the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and wouldn't have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you don't expect him. (coughs) Now, the question of what the heck Jesus is talking about here is much debated. A whole lot of trees have given their lives for the pages on which scholars have debated this question. In fact, some, many will say that this, this is the Mount Olivet Discourse, as it's known in the literature, that this is the most difficult of Jesus' sayings to interpret. It may be that Jesus isn't talking about the end of the world at all. Right? When his disciples say, what will be the sign of your coming and in the end of the end of the age, you could also read that as, as saying and of the, the culmination or the fulfillment of this generation, of, of this time, not as an end of the ages in the end of the world, but end of the age in which we do have this temple standing. Jesus, you just said that that's going to not be the case, so when are, when are we talking about it may very well be that what Jesus is referring to here is not the end of the world, but he's referring to A.D. 70. He's referring to some 40 years after he delivers this discourse when ultimately the Romans decide that they are fed up with the way that those persnickety Jews have been in rebellion against them, and they come in and they lay waste to Jerusalem, and they do destroy the temple and tear it down which is a calamity if you're Jewish, which was like the world ending. I mean, the language that Jesus uses is pretty much what you need to describe something of that magnitude. If you're talking about your temple, be the place that you worship the one true God, if that's being torn down, if the way you, you worship, the way you relate to this God is being completely destroyed, you need language as cosmic as you can get to describe what's at stake there. And when Jesus talks about his coming or the coming of the Son of Man, what may be the case is that he's talking about the coming of God in judgment of Jerusalem. You get this in the prophets often, right, where God comes in judgment. And so his coming is one of, of destruction against an unfaithful people. So that could be what Jesus is referring to. He could be saying that, yes, when, 40 years from now, when the Romans come in and they destroy Jerusalem, when they tear down the temple, this will be the way in which God is executing his judgment. Remember, he did that before. He uses, he uses uh, I mean, you, you know, if you're, if you're Cyrus, right, king of Persia, you might be kind of offended to hear that God thought that you actually were, you know, his lackey, right? He said, yeah, there's Cyrus. Yeah, he's my guy. He's going to go and wipe out my people because they got it coming. So it could be that, God, that, that what Jesus is talking about is this immediate judgment that happens. And so 
when he talks about the one being taken and the one being left, he's talking about the fact that there are going to be a whole lot of people killed during this process of the Romans destroying Jerusalem. That might be what he's talking about. Or it may be that he is talking about this great coming of the Son of Man as in his coming at the end of the age, as in the end of this world when God is going to come and sort things out. Because what we also get in the prophets, you'll remember, over and over as we get these references to the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, this great day when God is going to come and he is going to finally destroy all of the enemies that war against his people, including their own sin, by the way. And he's going to finally liberate all of creation from its captivity to all the things that have captured it. So there is this picture that we get in the prophets, and this may also be what Jesus is talking about here, of God finally sorting everything out, God finally putting everything to right, God coming in at the end and setting up this new world that he's promised us. That might be it. Certainly the people who hold to this idea of the rapture, as we have in in, uh, possibly here in First Thessalonians, and then maybe in Revelation, and then maybe in Matthew, where Jesus talks about one person being left and another being taken away. They would say, yes, there is going to be this great day of the Lord that is going to come. God is going to come in judgment, but he is going to come with his people. Before the great tribulation, though, he's going to come for his people and rescue them away so that they don't have to go through this time of tribulation, after which he comes back and finally sorts everything out. I think the big problem with this is that when you look at the language that we find in this passage in 1 Thessalonians, I don't think that it supports that. Let's take a look again. Paul says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead of Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Well, this, this word meet... When it says we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord forever, that word is apontesis in Greek. That word means meet, but it means meet in the sense of not going someplace and meeting somebody and staying there with him. It means going out to meet the person in the sense of going out to meet him and to bring him back in. So if you were... Uh, the town elders, and you had a dignitary, perhaps a victorious general was coming to visit, you would go out to Apontesis, meet him outside of the city gates, but you wouldn't stay there with him. You would meet him and bring him back in to where you would entertain him. The, the word shows up a couple times in the New Testament. One is in Matthew 25, shortly after the passage that we were reading. In 25, when Jesus talks about the parable of the virgins, you know, he gives a scenario where you've got these virgins and some of them were wise with using their lamps and the others weren't. And at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. The idea is not that these virgins are going to go out 
to where this bridegroom is and hang out with him outside the party. The idea is that they're going to go out and greet him and then welcome him in. That was going to be their job. You get the same thing going on in Acts, right at the end of book, the book of Acts in chapter 28. Paul and some friends show up in Rome. They found some brothers who were invited to spend a week with them, and, and they, they came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming. They traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us, right? So these people who went out to meet Paul and his friends who were coming to Rome didn't go out to meet him so that they could stay out there on the outskirts. They went out to meet him so that then they could bring him in. <coughs> Excuse me. To where he was going to be. So, it would make sense if this word is being used the way that other New Testament authors are using it and the way other people would have used it at the time that if we are in fact somehow caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds, even if that's going to happen in a literal sense, and when you start talking about clouds, you're usually talking about some really uh, strong figurative language anyway, but the, the idea is if we are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, the idea is not that we're going to stay there with him. The idea is that we are greeting him so that he can come in triumph and in victory to this world that is his in the first place. So if you see something like what you see on the cover of your bulletin, the scenario is that you're going to then pop up and meet Jesus in the clouds and then come back to earth with him, not be taken away by him. So if this passage in 1 Thessalonians is not about the rapture, and I don't think it is, then what is it about? Well, I think it's about a few things. One, Paul is writing to a congregation in Thessalonica that he didn't get a lot of time with. Paul's deal when he would plant these churches is usually he would show up in a town, he would show up at the synagogue, start preaching about Jesus, he would get kicked out and beaten up, and then he would stay around as long as he possibly could trying to teach other people about Jesus and to start this church there before he finally got beaten up and kicked out of town completely. He kind of tumbled down the Aegean coast doing this. And so he probably was with the Thessalonians for, for maybe two or three weeks. So it seems like he didn't get a chance to teach everything he would have liked to teach them. And they've got some confusion. They're like, okay, so, so um, Jesus is going to come back, right? He's going to come in glory to judge the living and the dead. Paul, of course, knew the Nicene Creed. And, um, and, and, and he taught them that, but they said, now, wait a minute, um, He's going to come back for us, but like some of our folks have died. So what happens to them? Is, that, is it just game over for them? And Paul says, no, 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 no. Look, I don't want you to mourn like people do who don't have hope. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to mourn. You are supposed to mourn. But you mourn as somebody who has a sure and certain hope of their resurrection, right? He's saying, yeah, when, when, when Jesus comes back, and if you want to read more about this, 1 Corinthians 15 is a lovely place to hang out. There is going to be this resurrection of the dead, and they're going to be raised. And, and you know, if we aren't dead, it's not like we have to die first and then come back. Jesus will just kind of take us as we are. And, and, and then we're going to be caught up together with our friends who have passed away. So I think he wants to give them some reassurance about the state of their friends. And I think he also implicitly maybe wanted to give them a reassurance that that, that relationship isn't over, that, 
in some way we will be together with them when this resurrection happens. I think Paul also wants to make it crystal clear that, yes, Jesus is coming back and that this resurrection thing is going to happen. Again, there's a lot more on this in 1 Corinthians 15. I'd dearly love to hang out in, but we have to get our cars liberated from the children. But the, what, what the New Testament has to talk about when it talks about the end times, more than anything else, is this resurrection from the dead. The idea is not that we kind of go and float off on clouds and sit around playing harps. The idea is that God resurrects our bodies. We will live in the new heavens and the new earth, that both are good, that the, the two which were separated will in some sense be unified, that we will still have lives when, when we are resurrected that are material. God doesn't hate stuff. God loves matter. He loves stuff. He made it. We don't just transcend all of that. We don't have some sort of future spiritual existence where we're just floating around. That God will resurrect our bodies and we will get new bodies that are glorified bodies and are not busted up like some of ours are. Bodies that don't wear out. Bodies that don't wear down. Bodies that don't break. This is the future. This is the hope that we have. This is what we're looking forward to. Not that someday Jesus comes and we kind of pop off into the clouds. And I think, most importantly, and this is kind of what Paul's getting into in chapter 5, is this passage is an exhortation to live in light of this fact that Jesus is coming back. And it's not like that bumper sticker, Jesus is coming, look busy. The idea is that we can live in the knowledge that we are in a certain part of the story, but that the last act is yet to come. And we get to live in light of that, which means that there are things about our eternal destiny that have broken into the present. There are things about eternity that start now that we don't wait for. We're supposed to live into the reality of this new kingdom that God is building and is one day going to bring in full. And so what that means is that we live like citizens of this future kingdom and not like citizens of the one that we were saved out of. I think that's what Paul is talking about. Now, I may be surprised. In fact, I'm sure there's going to be plenty that will surprise us about what God, what God does, and it may be that we will one day find a whole bunch of airplanes crashing and cars suddenly unoccupied. As the other bumper sticker says, when the rapture comes, can I have your Lexus? <laughs> but I think that uh, this passage places us on much firmer ground if we understand it, not as referring to some sort of rapture, but as Paul's always wise pastoral counsel to a young congregation that has some things that they need to learn and things they need to live into. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we would be people who live in hope of your coming. We would live in hope of the resurrection that will be ours one day. We pray that we would be people who live as citizens of that kingdom, that we would be building it now, knowing that one day you will bring it in full. We pray that we would do this with complete trust 
in you, confidence in your loving kindness to us. We pray that this would be to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.